Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Several years ago, I was visiting with my sister's family while the Summer Olympics happened to be on. And my nephew, Patrick, had, for, had just turned three. And one afternoon, he was being kind of grumpy and just possibly antagonizing his sister just a little bit. And uh, since Patrick has been a sports fan Pat, practically since he was a baby, I decided that a good distraction tactic would be to send him inside to check out what was on the Olympics at the moment and then to come back and report to me. So three-year-old Patrick sort of toddled off, and he came back a few minutes later with his report. You wouldn't like it, Aunt Ellen, he said. It's just persons talking. (laughs) So Patrick had happened on a commentary break, but to his little three-year-old eyes, it was just persons talking. We come today to the end of our sermon series on the post-communion prayer because we've come to the end of the post-communion prayer. And all that's left of the prayer is this concluding line. To him, that's Jesus, to you and to the Holy Spirit, be honor and glory now and forever. Amen. These are really churchy words. And they're really sort of formulaic, right? They sound similar to the words that close the collect that we pray every week. They're similar to the words that uh, close the prayer of consecration during the Eucharist. And if you put all that together, the fact that they're churchy words, that they are liturgically formulaic and familiar, you put all that together and it's not too hard for our brains to disengage when we get to this part of the prayer. It's not hard for us to just become persons talking. But if these words are important enough for us to pray them every week, then we probably shouldn't just be persons talking when we pray them. They probably deserve that we give some attention to them and reflect on them. And that's what I want us to do this morning. We have spent the last month thinking about how the post-communion prayer helps us understand what it means to be church. And I think that this last line of the prayer, far from being just a rote formula, actually captures something really critical about what it means to be church, to be a worshiping community. Two things, actually, I think it captures. Praise and purpose. So first, praise. To the Son, to the Father, and to the Holy Spirit, be honor and glory now and forever. That's basically what we're saying. You substitute the nouns for the pronouns in that sentence, and that's what we're saying. To the triune God, be honor and glory now and forever. At its most simple, this sentence is a declaration of praise. And the fact that this sentence is a declaration of praise becomes a little bit more evident if you'll follow me for just a moment down some word nerd paths. This post-communion prayer, of course, is not itself scripture, 
But the ideas of honor and glory that we're talking about, that we ascribe to God in this prayer, they are thoroughly scriptural ideas. And actually, both the concept of honor and glory, those are together encompassed by one word in both Hebrew, the Old Testament, and Greek, the New Testament. In Hebrew, that word is kabod. And in Greek, in the New Testament, the word is doxa, which captures again this idea both of God's honor and God's glory. And that word doxa is the root word of our doxology. So when we sing our doxology every week, when we sing praise God from whom all blessings flow, what we're doing is declaring God's honor and glory. Declaring God's honor and glory is an act of praise. So think for a moment of the post-communion prayer as a whole. In this prayer, we thank God for our salvation, for the way he makes himself present to us in the Eucharist, and for the assurance that he gives us that we belong to him and are part of his work in fulfilling his kingdom. We also ask God to send us out to love and serve him in everything that we do. In other words, what we're doing in this prayer is reaffirming the truth of who God is and what God does in our lives and in the world. And when we do that, when we reaffirm those things, praise is the natural result. We see this from time to time in Paul's letters. Paul will be in the midst of some deep theological point when seemingly out of nowhere he just bursts into praise. So if you look at the end of Romans chapter 11, Paul's been writing for a while about the great mystery that is God's choosing the Gentiles to be part of bringing Israel back to himself. It's a pretty deep theological discussion Paul is having here. And then he bursts out with this. He says, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And then he continues on with his theologizing. (laughs) For Paul, understanding God's character and his ways naturally and inevitably leads to praise. And as for Paul, then so for us. What the post-communion prayer shows us is that part of what it means to be church is to be a people who praise God for who he is and what he does. To be church means to be a people of praise. Being church also means that we are a people with a purpose. As I came into the end of the Bible study on Philippians this morning, Chuck was talking about how we are saved not just from something, but to something that God has a purpose for us. And our purpose, God has individual purposes for each of us, but together our overall purpose in life is to declare the honor and glory of God. Now, it sounds a little bit obvious to say that the church's purpose is to declare the honor and glory of God. It's the good churchy answer, like how Jesus is always the answer to any question the preacher asks. 
But although this sounds like an obvious point, I don't actually think it is that obvious, at least not in the way we live it out. And that's for two reasons, I think. One is that even with the best of intentions, we bring a lot of other ideas into this idea about what our purpose as a church is. So we bring a lot of ideas about what our church is. And the second reason this is not necessarily an obvious answer to the question is that this concept of glory is a really strange one, especially as it relates to God. It's a word we hear all the time, but its definition is kind of hard to pin down. So I want us to look at both of these things this morning. First, how knowingly or unknowingly we can bring with us a lot of ideas about what our purpose as a church is, other than bringing God glory. For one, it can be really easy for us to think about church in terms of what we get out of it. We think of church as an opportunity for us to get fed with good teaching, with worship, with the Eucharist, with community and fellowship. We think of church as a way to fill up our spiritual tanks. And church can and should be all of those things. Those are good purposes for the church to serve, but they're not the primary purpose of being church. Because as much as our American consumerist mindset might not like it, church doesn't actually exist primarily for us. Church exists primarily to bring glory to God. So it's easy for us to think of the purpose of church in terms of what we get out of it. And it's also easy for us to think about the purpose of church in terms of what church can do, what we can basically produce. So we might think about, you know, how many people come to know Jesus and follow him because of our church's ministry. We might think about how many people get discipled deeper into their faith because of our church's ministry. Or we might think about what the church can do in the community by helping the poor and working for a more just world. Let me be clear that you will never hear me say that those are not good things for the church to be doing. They are good things. They're maybe even necessary things for the church to be doing. But again, they are not the primary purpose of church. The primary purpose of church is to bring glory to God. Which leads us back to that second thing that makes it challenging for us to embrace this idea that the primary church's purpose of church is declaring God's glory. And that is, what is glory really anyway? And how do we declare God's glory? Now usually when we think of God's glory, we probably think of amazing displays of God's power his otherness. We might think of Moses' face shining after he comes down from meeting with God in the thunder and the cloud on Mount Sinai. We might think of the heavenly host filling the skies over the hills of Bethlehem as the angels announce Jesus' birth to the shepherds. We might think of the transfiguration 
When Jesus becomes this dazzling, bright, white figure, bright and shining like lightning. And those are all examples of people seeing God's glory. But they don't quite capture what glory is. And if you want to know what a word means, go to the dictionary. And in this case, go to a theological dictionary. And in the middle of a four-page explanation or reflection on the meaning of the word glory in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the New Dictionary of Biblical Theology says this, God's glory is his visible and active presence. God's glory is his visible and active presence. That means that wherever God is at work in the world, that's where God's glory is. So when the Israelites saw Moses' glowing face, they were seeing signs of God's visible and active presence. When the disciples saw Jesus calm the raging storm, they were seeing God's visible and active presence. When the women encountered men in dazzling white at the empty tomb, they were seeing God's visible and active presence. In all of these things, God's glory was being seen. But it's not just folks in the Bible who can see God's glory. We can see it too. Maybe we see it in the stunning beauty of creation in the crashing of waves on the beach or the gentle unfolding of a flower, we see the active and visible presence of the creator in his creation. And we see God's glory in the miracles that he works. Miracles of changed lives. It might be someone being healed of an illness. It might be someone experiencing the freedom that comes from God's love and forgiveness. Changed lives are places where God's visible and active presence is known, where we see God's glory. And of course, we know we will see God's glory when Jesus returns in power, bringing the fulfillment of his kingdom, fulfilling his reign of justice and shalom. But if we only expect to see God's glory to see his visible and active presence in those big and pretty powerful ways, then we're going to miss a lot. Because as a book that I read this week reminds us, throughout all of the Bible, God has a habit of showing up, of revealing his visible and active presence in the least likely, in some ways the least glorious, of places. This book is called Your God is Too Glorious, Finding God in the Most Unexpected Places. And it's by a guy named Chad Bird, who was a pastor and an Old Testament scholar before some of his choices and his circumstances ended up with him losing everything, his marriage, his job, his reputation. And now he's a truck driver and a writer. But on the road at rest stops and at diners, near dumpsters and fast food joints, Chad Bird has encountered the glory of God, his visible and active presence over and over again. 
Because he was an Old Testament scholar, Bird can show how this pattern of God revealing himself in unexpected places, it's a deeply biblical pattern. So for one example, he recounts the story of Elijah, and he says this. First, there were three natural phenomena, all seemingly electrified with divinity, that roar past the prophet. A great and strong wind tears mountains apart and breaks rocks in pieces. An earthquake shakes the mount, and tongues of fire lick the earth. Yahweh is rummaging through the loudest costumes in nature's closet, but one by one he leaves them on the hanger. We hear this litany, but the Lord was not in the wind, but the Lord was not in the earthquake, but the Lord was not in the fire. Then where was he? After the fire, the sound of a low whisper. The sound of a low whisper or a still small voice as the King James Version renders it. This was not a massive bellowing sound that reverberated through the wilderness, Bird says. It was God whispering something under his breath, almost inaudible, easily missed. In this book, Bird tells a lot of stories about how he has encountered this whispering glory of God, almost inaudible, easily missed. One of these stories is about a homeless couple that he met outside of a 7-Eleven. They were, the, the wife was standing near the dumpster, and the husband was in the dumpster, rummaging for any salvageable food that he could find. So Bird went into the 7-Eleven, bought them a couple sandwiches, came out, gave them to them, and when he did, the husband said, thank you, sir, thank you so much. We don't have hardly nothing. Just got into town a few nights ago and been sleeping under the bridge over there. But God, he always seems to send people to help us out. Jesus been good to us that way. He always provides. And thanking me again, they walked away, out of my life, but never from my memory and gratitude. A man who had no address, no car, no savings account, who was about to eat out of a trash can, He told me that Jesus has been good to us that way. In these words of gratitude and praise, Chad Bird sees the visible, active presence of God. And I don't think we should be surprised that that is where God's glory shows up. Because that's basically exactly what John tells us to expect in our passage from 1 John that we read this morning. In this passage, John has come back to his now familiar theme of the need of Christians to love one another. Beloved, he says, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And then in verse 12, John writes this. He says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. No one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. God, in the full grandeur of his divinity, is not visible to us, but if we love one another, God abides in us. If we love one another, God's presence is made active and visible in us. 
If we love one another, God's glory is revealed in us. When Chad Bird bought 7-Eleven sandwiches for that couple, the couple saw in his simple act of love the active and visible presence of God. And when the homeless man expressed his gratitude, Chad Bird saw the active and visible presence of God. God's glory was made manifest that day next to the dumpster of the 7-Eleven. And this truth, that God reveals his glory as often as not in the small and unexpected and inglorious places, perhaps there is no more important time for us to remember that than now as we come to the end of Lent and we approach the beginning of Holy Week. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday. And we will sing loud praises along with the crowds who lined Jesus' path to Jerusalem. We'll cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We will join the throngs who declare that in this Messiah, God's glory is revealed. And then next Friday, we'll gather in somber darkness as we remember that same Messiah now hanging on a Roman cross. But here's the thing. God's glory, the fullness of, fullest expression of God's visible and active presence isn't in the crowd shouting hosannas. It's on the cross. The most The fullest expression of God's glory is in the most inglorious of places. That is where we see God's active and visible presence. So where does this all leave us as church? If the primary purpose of church is to declare God's glory, then how do we do that? I think we do it in two simple, not necessarily easy, but simple ways. First, we learn to look for God's glory. We learn to look for God's active and visible presence in our lives and in the world around us, and we take the time to stop and give him praise when we do. And second, we seek to be the means by which God might choose to reveal his active and visible presence, his glory, to others. So we learn to look for God's glory, and we learn to be the means by which God shows his glory to others. And it turns out that in both of these things, love is the key. We can learn to see God's glory in others by looking at them with the eyes of God's love. And we can be the way that God shows his glory to others by loving them. My friend and colleague in my Renew ministry, uh, Anjali Raya, she recently wrote a blog post that captures this really well. The way that love helps us to see God's glory and to show it to others. She writes about um, a 
church conference that she was helping to lead. And as she was busy getting set up and bringing things in and out of her car, she saw a homeless man sitting by the door of the church. And she thought, I really don't have time to talk to this guy. I probably should, but I don't really know how to talk to him and what I should say. But then she looked and she saw that this man had a couple of bags of groceries and that one of those bags had a box of Honey Nut Cheerios, which I think we might even have right here. And she said, that was it. That was the spark because she loved sugary cereals, even though she knew she shouldn't. And so that was the thing that let her connect with him. That was the thing that helped her initiate a conversation. She sat down on the ground next to him and had a conversation with this man whose name she learned was Aubrey. And then she writes this. She says, It was not until that evening that a profound notion slipped in unbeckoned. That was Jesus. What? Who? Aubrey? No. Wait. Yes, Aubrey. An elderly, homeless, African-American man with a few canned goods, not expecting to be noticed, might have, in fact, been the creator of the universe in very convincing disguise. That seems like a stretch. In Matthew 25, Jesus gave us his home address, told us exactly where to find him. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Our Jesus, of Bethlehem's manger, who touched lepers, who was himself homeless, can surely be found in surprising, unsettling places, and indeed waits for us there. Because she took the time to look, Angeli saw the glory of God in the face of Aubrey. And I don't know for sure, but I would be willing to bet that in that simple act of love, a conversation in which a shared love of cereal spoke dignity and honor and care, I would be willing to bet that in that act of love, Aubrey saw the glory of God too. Praising God, declaring his honor and glory, that is what it means to be church. That is our purpose as a worshiping community. Praising God and bringing him glory, declaring his honor and glory by looking for and being God's active and visible presence in the world. Praising God and declaring his honor and glory by seeing and showing God's love. That's what it means to be church. And so we bring this sermon and this series to a close. This series where we have used one of our liturgy's prayers to think about what it means to be church. And it is a danger of the liturgy that that we speak the same words over and over, week in and week out. And those words can become rote We can become unthinking as we say them. We can become just persons talking. But my hope and my prayer is that these weeks that we have spent looking at this prayer will help keep that from happening. I pray that this prayer would take root deep in our hearts. 
that it would remind us week in and week out of what it means to be church. That, it, that we are a people who experience an encounter with God and are fed spiritually by our Savior, Jesus. That we are a people who live out of our identity as God's beloved children and who help each other grow into the fullness of who God's made us to be. That we're a people who are committed to being part of God's work of bringing about his rule and reign here and now. That we're a people who are sent out, whose work lies not here within these walls, but out there as we share in word and action Jesus' love. And that we are a people who desire that all that we do and all that we are would be an act of praise and a means by which God's presence and action are made known in the world. That's what it means to be church. And so I close with the words that close our prayer. May it be so. Amen. Amen.